0: Amen, as some of our little ones are being uh, dismissed for Children's Church this time, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we're going to look at this uh, chapter today uh, as we continue in our exposition of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. I'll be looking at um, pieces and parts really to this entire chapter today. And so I want us to take time now to pray and ask for the leadership of the holy spirit uh, who we must depend upon as we open his word and now and seek to hear from our faithful lord and savior lord god we do thank you for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in your word we thank you that we have certainty That what we have in the pages before us are inspired words, God-breathed words that you have given for our instruction, for our growth in grace, for our good. So Lord, would you allow your word now to inform us? but also to further conform us to the image of your Son, for the glory of your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a week or so ago, I know that most of us here in this area enjoyed spring break, and many of us took advantage of that and went elsewhere, away from this nasty, gray, cold place, um, some of us had that opportunity. Others of you persevered, and your reward in heaven will be greater for that. I'm convinced. Um, but my family, we, we had opportunity to go down to Orlando, Florida, to spend time with uh, Jennifer's parents, uh, just where it's warm. And we ended up staying at a place that was about a mile or so away from a little tiny place you may have heard of it before, called the Magic Kingdom. you ever heard of that little place. Now we didn't visit the Magic Kingdom. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, we didn't go. We spent some time doing other things. Uh, but, you know, I got to thinking about Disney World and the Magic Kingdom. And I began to ask my family this, and others this past week. I think they thought I'd lost my mind because I was asking such delicate, careful questions uh, about the Magic Kingdom. And my simple question was this. Who is the king of the Magic Kingdom? I thought it was a fair question. Nobody could give me an answer to that. Well, there are all these princesses, right? There, there's Cinderella's castle. But who's the king? Who's in charge? I mean, Disney died, you know, rest his soul. Um, but who's who's in charge of the magic kingdom? And, and I couldn't help but conclude that there we have an example, although in fairy tale example, maybe, uh, of a king kingless kingdom, right? We have an example of a kingdom that exists that draws tons of people from all over the world That's that's... Loaded with money, but it's in essence a kingless kingdom. Um, now, we, you know, we can enjoy that. That's certainly part and parcel to uh, being a, a child and certainly enjoying some of the things that they put out. I'm not here to criticize Disney at all today. I'm just here to point out the fact that it's an example of a kingdom that exists, a magical kingdom, that is a kingless kingdom. And I got to thinking about how, how difficult it would be in the real world. It probably works for them. But in the real world, how difficult it would be for there truly to be a kingdom without a king. Think about that. I mean, some of you may dream about that. Be nice without government, right? Well, it's called anarchy. You know, God ordained government, like it or not, uh, for our good and for there to be some order, and there are some governments better than others. We realize that. But to imagine a kingdom or a nation without proper authority would be, would be difficult. You know, as magical as the magic kingdom might be, and as real as, their, as other kingdoms may be, the reality is, is that the Bible presents us with a kingdom that is infinitely better. The kingdom of God is infinitely better because there is, there is a king on the throne. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom without a king. There is a king on the throne, and he is the eternal king. Jesus is the king of this kingdom, and he, in fact, is presently ruling his kingdom. There's not one piece of real estate, government, authority, or person that does not exist under his sovereign authority as I speak. And the good news is this entrance into this kingdom is free. It's not $110 and there's no fast pass right it's free it was costly certainly when you look at the cross don't deny that but for you and for me entrance into this eternal kingdom ruled by an eternal king that governs all of life and all that we know in this world this universe for you to enter that kingdom it's free Now, in the end, it will cost you your life as you give your life over to this king in joyful submission and service to him, and there's nothing but pure joy for those who do, but it's an eternal kingdom ruled by an eternal king. So the question that comes to my mind when we think about kings and kingdoms, and particularly this eternal kingdom, this eternal king, is what is this king like, or maybe better yet, how when we we begin to understand what He is like, how should we respond to Him? Think about that. When we begin to reflect upon the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus, who's sovereign over His kingdom, who rules eternally, how should you and I, how should you respond to Him in light of His rule? Well, when we look at chapter 20 of Matthew, I think that we, we are given some help in understanding because I think in understanding our response, and so Matthew chapter 20, and a lot of Matthew because a lot of Matthew talks about the kingdom of God, but Matthew chapter 20 sort of sets up and informs how we ought to respond to the kingdom of God and the rule of Christ our King. So Matthew chapter 20 not only gives us a better understanding of the nature of God's kingdom, it also gives us a better picture of our king and how we should relate to him in our lives. Let's look at Matthew chapter 20. I want us to begin with verses 1 and following, what we call the laborers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. they said to him because no one has hired us he said to them you go into the vineyard too and when evening came the owner of the vineyard called to his foreman call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first and when those hired about the 11th hour came each of them received a denarius now when those hired first came, when those hired first came excuse me now when those hired first came they thought they would receive more Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. You know, the parable of the vineyard found here only in Matthew's gospel is really an illustration of what we saw there at the end of chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus says, and he reaffirms here in the last verse that I just read, that many who are first will be last. And the last first. You know, this parable is really quite fascinating. But it's fairly straightforward. I don't think I have to spend a lot of time today explaining the meaning of this parable. You read it. You understand what is being said. It makes sense. So we have this master goes out one morning. He hires laborers for his vineyard. The first round of laborers are hired first thing in the morning. They agree to work for what? A denarius a day, right? There's the contract and they go to work. But then we see later on in the text, the master returns to the marketplace at 9, at 12, and again at 5 p.m., and each time hires workers for his vineyard. At the end of the day, the master pays all of them equally. He brings the last group in first. That's significant. This last group was hired for an hour. And when pay time came, which was common in those days, they were paid at the end of every day, they call the last people hired at 5 p.m. first, and he gives them a denarius. And that's significant because at that point, as the other workers had been there all day, they're thinking, oh, this is going to be payday for us. We agreed to a denarius. He gave them that much. How much more will we get? Maybe they missed it. Maybe it's a denarius an hour, right? We know what happens; they're paid the exact same thing Now, when you first hear that parable, we find ourselves sympathizing with the with the laborers that were there all day, don't we i mean if you don't just feel a little bit of of their argument then you, you, you may may not be human i don't know but, but but the human in us understands that there's a little there, there's a little beef there that they have and, and and they're pointing that out now there's some issues with that but you know we could we could really get bogged down here and talk about the responses of the laborers when i think that if we did that while that's important and they play a certain role in this parable that the parable is not ultimately about them This parable is not ultimately about who came when and got what, but about the one who owned the vineyard and ultimately about his generosity and his provision. So the first thing that we see is that we ought to delight in the provision of our king. When we think about the nature of God's kingdom and we think about the the gift of his kingdom and how we ought to respond to his kingship over our lives, we as as recipients of this kingdom, ought to delight in the gifts, the provision of the king. I want us to consider several truths that are illustrated here in this parable about the provision of the master, of the king. If we're to delight in his provision, why ought we to delight in this provision? Why is it such a delightful thing that he provides in the way that he does? What is it about him that that should bring us to worship of him and delight in him? Well, the first thing that I would point out that is apparent in this parable is that, first of all, our king, he is a sovereign provider. He's a sovereign provider. One of the reasons that this parable pushes us a bit is because on the surface, it just doesn't seem fair to us or to the certain laborers that were there all day that the workers who were hired at the 11th hour received the same pay as did those who worked all day. Doesn't seem fair. And so we bring our sense of fairness to bear upon this story, just like the laborers who were there all day did. And instead of stepping back and realizing that the master had the right to do as he determined with that which belonged to him, we begin to see the argument of these early laborers. Friends, this master didn't have to hire the laborers, did he? But he chose to. And the simple illustration, I think, that this parable highlights here is that, that our provision of redemption, of salvation, is not based upon our merits. It's not based upon merit. It's not based upon how much we've done to earn God's generosity. But our salvation and the blessings in which we enjoy from God are based upon His sovereign grace alone. Everyone who receives the blessings of salvation by the grace of God receives the same eternal inheritance. It's not denying, I don't believe this text denies the idea that I think is biblical of rewards, but it does state clearly that all who receive the blessings of salvation receive the same salvation. Listen, there are not some who are more saved than others. You realize that? There's not a Christian on the planet that is more saved than you if you're a Christian. The thief on the cross who exemplified faith in his last breath received the same blessed inheritance as did the apostles who persevered for years, most of which were killed. Those who believe in Christ, whether a lifelong tyrant or a persevering servant, will both receive the same salvation. Let me push it a little bit more into our day and time. We know that we exist in a day and time where there is much terror and much evil. It's always been the case since since that first bite in the garden. But friends, some of you, maybe many of you, came to Christ at an early age. For example, I came to Jesus by the grace of God when I was young, seven or eight years old. But what this parable is teaching is that, that even if an extremist Islamic terrorist who slaughtered people ultimately believes in the gospel... That same extremist Islamic terrorist will receive the same inheritance as I. And if that startles you, and if that bothers you a bit, then you may not have quite the vision of the kingdom that you should. The kingdom of God is not about what you've done to get in it. It's everything about the sovereign mercy of God who gave of himself freely and generously because he wanted to not because you deserved it. He's a sovereign provider. He's a sovereign provider. It is his vineyard, it is his kingdom to do with as he chooses. For in sovereign grace, God's electing mercy is a humbling doctrine that levels everyone at the cross. No one, no one is righteous, no not one, and yet in God's own sovereign mercy, he pardons sinners. And we fight against this because that's not how life works. We're used to this quid pro quo approach to goods and services. You do something and then you receive something in return. But you can't apply that to salvation. It doesn't work that way. Salvation is not that way at all. And the reason we fight against that is is because it seems so unfair that one would be rewarded the same exact thing as the other. And Salvation is not based upon merit. It's based upon grace. He's a sovereign provider, but he's also a just provider. You know, you may find yourselves sinfully so and rightfully so in that regard, sinfully so, Um, in agreement with these these workers who worked all day, you, you, you can at least understand their argument, even though it wasn't, based upon what I'm about to say, right. But what you can take away from this text, and what they should have seen in this passage, is that the master of this vineyard was just. It's important to understand that the master never broke his contract. He never broke his word, did he? Verse 2. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And in verse 10, they receive what they agreed upon. Where's the injustice? There's none. The point we see here is that if God has promised us something, if he has given his word, he will always remain faithful to his word. He will never remove his promise from us. Not only that, when he hires the other laborers later on, he tells them in verse 4 that I will give you whatever is right. That is the Lord, in all of his dealings with mankind, he will give us what he determines as right because he is just. In fact, when you go back and try to, to apply, you, you see how grace, actually, if we received what we earned, if we base salvation upon what we deserve, none of us would receive salvation. Grace is actually giving us what we don't deserve. And yet God's mercy at the same time, in his mercy, his justice is being satisfied because our sin is still being punished in Christ. He's a just provider. Can you imagine the labor unions if this happened in our day and time? Not saying I'm against labor, I'm just saying can you imagine whatever situation, even if there's no labor union, can you imagine this happening at work? Well, what about you? Well, I don't know what you do. My guess is you're an engineer. That's pretty safe, right? Or a teacher. Or in the Navy. But what if you've worked in your position for years and, and years and years and you've worked and worked and worked and you finally have got to a level? where you feel like you've been adequately compensated for your work, and then they hire somebody right out of college at your same level. Injustice. You would be crying. We don't have to necessarily look to work. Again, when we seek to apply our own sense of fairness and justice we often arrive at wrong conclusions, especially in light of God, our provider. Friend, do, you, do you ever find yourself growing bitter towards someone that seems to have more than you? Sometimes I think that we feel as if God has shortchanged us somehow. Maybe it is that particular job you think you should have that someone else got. Maybe it's your friend's home that seems so much nicer and larger than yours. Maybe as a married person, you view another marriage and you're envious. Why can't my marriage be like that? Or as a single, your desire for a godly spouse continues to be present, but you are struggling to find one. Maybe you wonder why your parents are so strict. or maybe you wonder if your parents even care. You know, we often find ourselves in situations and circumstances that seem like that it's not as good as someone else's. Pastors struggle with that constantly. We do our comparisons. How many do you have? How many do you have? How big's your church? How big's your church? What are your people like? What's this like? And we find ourselves discouraged because we're comparing ourselves to the bigger and the greener. Friends, this attitude is constant. And really the the sinful attitude behind this, 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 the sinful heart behind this attitude is really saying this, Lord, I deserve more than this. That's what these laborers were saying. I deserve more than this, Lord. Friends listen here's the fact that is often hard for us to receive. I include myself in the us. Here it is. God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. He is the supreme sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth. We are the ones that turned our back on him. If we deserve anything, it is separation from him forever. And he would be just in that. And yet in his mercy, he extends salvation. He's a just provider. When he has given us something, and so when we receive his inheritance and the inheritance that we get by the grace of God through Christ, he's not going to take it away. When we stand before him on Judgment Day, he's not going to say, you know what, never mind on that. Go with the goats. He's just. But perhaps the one that overrides all of the, that at least informs all of this is his generosity. He's a generous provider. You know, in God's relationship to his people, he will always do and give us what is right. But there are times that he goes beyond that and is abundant in his generosity. You know, the only thing that the master could be accused of in this parable is being overly generous. He cannot be accused of being unjust. He gave what he said he would give. He couldn't be accused of mishandling the money that wasn't his because it was his money, it was his vineyard. It was his call to hire them. But he could be, I guess, accused of being overly generous. And that's exactly the point Jesus desires to make. God is a generous God who delights in extending favor to the undeserving. I think the highlight on him giving the same to those who deserved, if we used human standards, less it magnifies the generosity of God. He delights in being generous to those who are undeserving. Friend, guess guess who that is? It is you and I. And until we realize that salvation is all of grace and the only thing we've truly earned is separation from God, then we will be just like these early laborers. Friend, the fact is nothing we've done has earned our place in the kingdom. It's all of grace. It's because of the generosity and kindness of God. Second observation that we see about our king in this passage comes in the next few verses. Actually, in verses 17 through 19, Jesus foretells his death and again, really for a third time now, and really that is the basis of what grants us entry into his kingdom. But now I want you to pick up with me in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, uh, you, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, Notice Notice the conversation now has expanded to now include the two sons. They said to him, We are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant that the two brothers, but Jesus called to them, called to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their, their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here in this, this next account, we, we have an interesting encounter with, with Jesus and the mother of James and John. Quite frankly, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's family that are all communicating here. And so the mother of James and John come to Jesus and ask if her two sons could possibly have a place at the right and left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. Still thinking about the kingdom, they're thinking about his rule. Can they sit at your right and your left? And You know, it's likely that that James and John put their mom up to this. Because after all, Jesus isn't going to say no to mom, right? But Jesus wastes no time in responding. But he does so in a way that further clarifies the nature of the kingdom. They still had a wrong understanding of what the kingdom of God was about. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus replies. And then he asks them directly. He's no longer talking to the mother. He's talking to the two sons. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they're probably thinking the gold cup that sits in the throne room, right? The nice, fancy stuff that kings drink from. That's not the cup Jesus is talking about. Oftentimes in Scripture, the word cup has several meanings, several usages that we find. It can be a metaphor for blessing, but more often it's a metaphor for judgment or suffering. And Certainly in this context, Jesus is using the reference of a cup to the coming suffering that that he's going to endure but without them understanding that they respond confidently but their response demonstrates their cluelessness so jesus goes on to instruct them about what greatness in the kingdom is all about that's what they're asking we want to be great in your kingdom jesus we want to be right there with you Friend, the kingdom of God is not about your greatness, it's not about my greatness, it's all about the greatness of the king. There's no shared glory. A couple of things that we should see that I think this text is is, is not just implying but, but stating. When it comes to committing ourselves to the kingdom of God by the grace of God, we as recipients of this kingdom... As those who have inherited this kingdom and brought, been brought into this family, we are to abandon all forms and all manifestations of pride. The kingdom of God is not about you. It's about the king. As God, Jesus had every right to be served and to be worshipped, and to be treasured. But in His incarnation, the Son of God in His incarnation, in coming to earth, He did not come to be served. But rather, He came to be the servant. And give His life as a ransom for sinners. Friends, if there was anyone who had a special claim to greatness, it was Jesus. But the kingdom way of pursuing greatness is not through exaltation, though he is exalted and he will be worshipped and he is worshipped and he will be forever and ever. But he is modeling for us in his incarnation what true greatness is about and it is about serving, it's about abandoning our pride and about serving those around us. Charles Spurgeon put it this way about pride. He said, pride has 10,000 shapes. It is not always that stiff and starched gentleman that you picture it. It is a vile, creeping, uh, insulating thing that will twist itself like a serpent into our hearts. We have to abandon that by the grace of God. The kingdom of God is not about our greatness. It's not about who we are. It's not about pursuing status. The only status you should be concerned with is whether or not you are a child of God. So, as we abandon manifestations of pride, we then embrace a life of humble service. That's what Jesus is, is in essence, pointing to. He said, Listen, if it's not going to be, he said, in verse 25, you know. That the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They abuse their power. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants. Diaconos. That isn't the word that we get deacon from. Not used here in this context relating that office. But Jesus is saying that all my people will be servants. He clarifies the nature of his kingship is tied with suffering. He came not to be served but to serve. And that service was ultimately demonstrated through his giving his life as a ransom for many. Laid down his life for us, who's crucified for your sin, my sin. It's true greatness, true greatness is, is defined in humility and in service if we are truly going to reflect the character of our king, then we must be radically committed to humble servanthood. All of us. J.C. Rowe put it this way. True greatness consists not in receiving, but in giving. Not in selfish absorption of good things, but in parting good to others. Not in being served, but in serving. Not in sitting still and being ministered to, but in going about And ministering to others. Friends, this goes against everything that we're taught in this world. We are taught that ease and luxury and status are things we must pursue at no cost. At all cost. Rank, wealth, status are all positive things that we're called upon to give ourselves to. In and of themselves, they aren't bad. There's a lot of godly people who are wealthy and have a lot of influence and status. Those things in and of themselves aren't sinful. Don't hear me saying that. But what the world says is we should pursue that. Humility is is not so virtuous anymore. But as Christians, our humility and service must be our chief pursuit. Friends, if you are a Christian, listen. If you are a Christian, you are a servant. You're a servant. And if you're a Christian and you've been called to be part of this congregation, you are called to serve in this congregation. Called to serve outside of this congregation, but as part of this congregation, you're called to serve within this body of Christ. God, by His Holy Spirit, has gifted you And the Bible teaches that as those who are being conformed into the image of Christ, if we're being made more and more like Christ, then we're going to be more and more servants. And if we're going to be like Jesus, then we need to be serving each other. We're not just those who come to receive. Friends, for those of you who are Downton Abbey fans, there are just simply too many who want to be Lord Grantham when we need more Mr. Carsons. The Church was not created merely to come and sit, because the church isn't a place. It's a body. and it has hands and feet, eyes and ears and mouth, legs, arms. this structure in the middle that keeps it all together. We're called to be a body of servants. Number three. As we wrap up this passage, we see that not only do we see the character of our king which is exemplified in service and how we're to model that, we also see how we're to marvel at the compassion of our king. Look at verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This final account here in Matthew chapter 20 is the account of Jesus' encounter with two blind men. Mark names, Mark only refers to one of them, blind Bartimaeus, if you remember that account. But there's actually two in this story. These blind men were most likely beggars. They were helpless. They were desperate. And they were here crying out for mercy the king. There are just three quick observations we find here. Number one, what we see is that Jesus hears the cry of the broken. He hears the cry of the broken. These men were crying out for help. It was a cry of desperation. They were persistent even when the crowd sought to silence them. Jesus is not like crowd. He doesn't hear the cry of the broken as noise that needs to be silenced. He hears the cry of the broken as opportunity to serve. Number two, Jesus delights in responding to the cry of the broken. He hears the cry of the broken and he delights in responding to the cry of the broken. the, The king doesn't simply sit in a plush palace And bark out orders and commands. He models service and humility by ministering to broken people. He serves the broken. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's present to serve the down and out, the lowly, the broken, the downtrodden. Lepers. Those with all kinds of diseases, the lame, the blind, men, women, Adults, children, Jew or Gentile, Jesus invested his life to all. Note the difference here in contrast to the request of James and John through their mom. There's no request here to sit at Jesus' right or left hand. There's simply the desire to see. They just wanted their sight. And Jesus grants it, which leads me to the third truth, is that he can totally transform the broken. In pity, he touches their eyes, and immediately they recover their sight. And what did they do? They just jump up and down and say, we see now, thanks Jesus, we're out of here. They recovered their sight, and they followed him. The truth is that, when you read this story about the, the blind men, well, it, was, it was a real event. Jesus really, physically, reached out to these broken, blind beggars. And he transformed them in spite of how the crowd responded. When you read that story, the truth of the matter is, and the spiritual truth of the matter is, is that these two blind men really is the story of all of us we are nothing but spiritually blind beggars who need the mercy of Christ and if you're here today and you find yourself in a situation where you're just you're not convinced that you've ever trusted in christ you are not convinced that you're a christian maybe you 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 sense the 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 weight of your sin and in, in in the in the in the the struggle of life and, and and you have no hope, you just feel hopeless you don't you don't feel like there's any any future for you, and you just feel the weight of your sin, the hope for you, friend, is the same hope as these two blind beggars. If you just simply cry out for mercy, Jesus delights in extending mercy Christians, if you're here and you, and you hear the cry of these beggars. My hope and my prayer for us is that that it would remind us of our own conversion, that we indeed were beggars, that we had nothing to give. We had nothing to present Jesus as if he would accept us somehow, but rather we were in need of him to even open our eyes so we could see. And may the same grace and mercy that came upon you at that moment of conversion. May that same grace and mercy inform you and how you serve and minister to other people around you. You know, we live in a world enamored with fairy tale princes, princesses, and magic kingdoms. And while those have their place in entertainment value, the reality is is that we live in a world that's content with kingless kingdoms. Actually the reality is is that we want to be the king of our own kingdom. But the Bible is a means of grace which God has given us so that we could be reminded That there's only one true king. There's only one eternal king who governs an everlasting kingdom. Friend, do you know him? Do you know this king? Have you submitted to this king? Do you worship this king? Do you love and treasure this king more than anything else? Do you delight in his provision? The fact that he didn't have to be generous, he was just leaving you in your sin. But he was generous to you by extending mercy to you. Do you delight in that? Does that motivate everything that you do? Do you live life in light of the grace that that God has granted to you in his sovereign mercy? Or do you say, no, I deserve that. I deserve that. In fact, I deserve more. And do you live a life that's consistently imitating the character of your king through service? Or are you simply content in being served? What about the compassion of the king? Does that same compassion inform your heart and your behavior as you see others? We have a great king. And this kingdom that we're part of is eternal. Let's live in the present as those who reflect the image and character of this king to his glory and to his honor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us this morning of the truth of who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your generosity. We thank you for your grace. Father, I'm not, I'm not one who would ever dare to think that I could read a heart or someone's mind And so, Lord, I gladly trust in you, full well knowing that you know everyone in this room. You know every heart. You know the hearts that have been captivated by your grace. You know those hearts in this room who have called out for mercy. You know those in this room who continue to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord. And you know how far we have to go. But Lord, you also know the rebel's heart. You know the hearts in this room who are more concerned with leaving right now than they are truly submitting to the King. They're more concerned with getting to the next place, the next appointment, the next to-do list item than they are serving the Lord. You know the hearts that are still gripped with selfishness and pride. Who would rather rule their own life than submit to one who could perfectly rule them. Father, would you have mercy upon us here today? Would you call us to repentance? Would you call us to faith? Would you call us to embrace a life of joyful obedience to the true eternal King? Father, you know our hearts and you know our struggles and you know our sins. Would you meet us where we are today and lead us to where we need to be? Would you be generous to us, Lord? Would you be generous to the undeserving today? And by your grace, do that which we don't deserve, but that which would bring you certain glory.